They were poor black people in a small town in Texas accused by a white cop. They were convicted on almost no evidence. Some of them got 90 years in prison. One gentleman got 323 years. On a single day in 1999, nearly 10% of the African-American population of a small Texas town called Tulia was arrested in a drug sweep. The raids were based on the word of a single white undercover officer with a checkered past. Today you'll learn about what happened that day and the fallout that ensued over many years. My name is Kate Stetson. I'm a global board member and the co-director of our appellate practice at Hogan Levels. Since the creation of the firm's pro bono department in 1970, Hogan Levels has taken on countless cases in the fight for criminal justice. Two attorneys on the front lines of that battle, who represented the African-American residents arrested in Tulia, are here with us right now, Des Hogan and Mitch Zamoff. Des, I'll start with you. Take us back to that day in July of 1999. What happened? Unfortunately, in July of 1999, on one day, nearly 10% of the Black residents of a small town in Texas called Tulia were arrested. Uh, they were arrested on the word simply of one bad cop. Um, they, they were roused from their beds early in the morning at gunpoint with a, a regional task force with, uh, with, with uh, guns drawn and bursting into their uh, bedrooms, dragged out literally in their underwear and put in prison um, for crimes that they didn't commit. And uh, it didn't, the, the truth of the matter is, is that didn't get much national press attention at the time. I actually remember seeing the New York Times story on it, which was one paragraph long at the time, buried sort of at the at the back of of the A section in the New York Times, and that's what happened. So, Mitch, tell us a little bit about Tom Coleman, the arresting officer. Tom Coleman um, was a bit of a. Uh, renegade free agent personality in the law enforcement community down in Texas. He bounced around from department to department, uh, acting in various uh, undercover roles. Uh, he, he ended up um, connecting with something called the Panhandle Regional Narcotics Task Force in Texas, which was a collection of about 25 counties uh, in that part of the state that were tasked with uh, increasing drug enforcement activity, uh, particularly in rural areas uh, of Texas. And they were the recipients of some federal grant money, um, which was keyed in some ways to their level of productivity from the perspective of arrests and seizures of narcotics. And was that, your, are you talking about the Panhandle Narcotics Task Force? That's correct. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about kind of the, the oversight there, if there was any at all. Well, from our perspective, uh, there wasn't much oversight at all. Um, and that was one of the fundamental problems with uh, this investigation, not just that it had a, um, a problematic racial dynamic to it, where all of the enforcers uh, were white and almost all of the targets of the investigation were black but there didn't appear to be any meaningful oversight um, from superior officers to Tom Coleman with respect to supervising his undercover uh, activities. In fact, 
one of the um, unifying features of all of these cases, and there were over 40 cases that were involved in this situation, was not just that almost all the defendants were black, but that there was no corroboration for any of Tom Coleman's allegations about drug trafficking on the part of these defendants. No other officer involved, no tape, no video, none of the normal indicia of reliability that you would hope to find in um, cases of this magnitude. So Des, what, what happened to all of the people arrested in this sweep? What, what was the outcome of, of the, or those cases? Well, unfortunately, what happened to them is they got small town Texas justice. And what that means is they were uh, poor black people in a small town in Texas accused by a white cop of committing uh, the crime of selling crack cocaine. And uh, they they were convicted on almost no evidence, as Mitch was saying. So the first 12 or so of the defendants went to trial and they got Texas size sentences, meaning big. Uh, some of them got 90 years in prison. One gentleman got 323 years in prison. He was a in his mid 60s, uh, man with uh, diabetes um, who was sentenced to 323 years in prison. And these convictions happened, as Mitch was saying a minute ago, without corroboration. And the the scheme that Coleman committed here is he would take, he took, um, you know, quote unquote, buy money, somehow got a little bit of cocaine, sprinkled the, that tiny trace of cocaine into, uh, into baking soda or other, other sort of materials that look like cocaine so that he would have that. And then, and then he, he went about, you know, essentially pocketing that drug money. And then he, he would have these quote unquote bags of cocaine that got tested. And the test came back that these were highly diluted samples, but there was a trace of cocaine in there. That's enough to get a conviction, even though there's no corroboration, even though no witness saw it, even though he took notes by writing them on his leg uh, in, in ink, uh, quote unquote, about the uh, arrests. And even though he had been arrested during the course of, of, the, of the middle of the sting operation for, for um, robbing the last employer that he had. So despite all of that evidence, he went, the, these people went to trial, got convicted. After the first 12 convictions, the DA realized he better start offering pleas, uh, or people realized that they should start taking the DA's pleas, and people pled after that. The next two dozen uh, defendants pled to sentences that ranged from three to 20 years in prison. All in all, I think by the time we got involved, there were 36 convictions, uh, and and all of and and most of the defendants were in prison at the time we took the case on. All, all grounded basically on the word of Officer Coleman and a bag of, of baking powder. That's right. Right. So how, how and when did Hogan Levels get involved in this? We got a call uh, a few years later. Um, we got a call from a young lawyer named Vanita Gupta and her colleague George Kendall at NAACP-LDF. Uh, they reached out to me just because I, I had worked with uh, George on other matters and I was a senior associate in the CSD at the time. Uh, and, and they said, you're not going to believe what has happened and told, told the story that you told at the top of this podcast, Kate, 
the 10% of the African-American population in, in this small town was arrested on the same day on the word of a dirty cop. Can you guys help? And, uh, and you know, I, we took it on after talking to, to the head of the pro bono department and getting coordinated with Mitch and Adam Levin and a few other people here at the firm. We decided to take the matter on and um, soon Mitch and I and others were spending a lot of time in rural Texas taking witness statements in basements of police stations and living rooms of, uh, of people all around uh, West Texas. Can you give us a little bit more, uh, give us a little bit more kind of color and background around that? One of the critical things that we had to do was show that that Tom Coleman was a liar, uh, that he had a history of being dishonest, and we had to prove that as part of proving uh, that the there was an unfair uh, trial because that kind of evidence had been excluded by the judge. And so what that took was going around to the various places where Tom Coleman had been a peace officer before and convincing people to swear affidavits uh, saying that he was dishonest, had stolen from them, or had done other things that, that would suggest they had a, had a history of dishonesty. Um, and so I, uh, there was four of us that went to rural towns all around West Texas doing this. Uh, me and Tara Patter, Han- Patterson Hammonds went on, on one strand, and Adam Levin and Jen Clark went on the other and, and went off to find witnesses. And so what that took was this is we would call people on the phone and they often would say they didn't want to talk to us. And then we'd have to go to their house or we'd have to go to their place of work. Uh, the one person that we needed was Tom Coleman's old boss, the sheriff in a very small town on the New Mexico border uh, to tell us why he thought Coleman, why he fired Coleman and thought he was dishonest after Coleman had stolen about $6,000 worth of equipment. Well, uh, when I called his house, his wife said he's out mowing the back 40 uh, and she didn't know when he would be in. It could be hours. And, and, but she told me he'd be at work the next day, bright and early. So Tara and I went to, to his office the next day, which was in the basement of the courthouse in this small town. We go in there and we start talking to him. We tell him we're lawyers from Washington, DC, and he almost threw us out right away. But I, I said to him, you know, look, I, we're here to talk about Tom Coleman. I know he stole from you. Can can we just talk about that? I, I don't need anything from you other than you to tell him the story. And so we sat down and sat with him for three hours while he told detailed stories of Coleman. Tara was writing furiously uh, uh, while he was telling those stories in this dank basement. And at the end of that, after he got it all out, I, I we just said to him, look, you know, it's unfair that these people are in prison on the uh, on the word of a liar. Can you just sign sign something? You just told us the truth. Can you sign something that summarizes it? And he said, "Well, if you can get if you can get it to me in the next hour, I'll do it." And so we wrote up a declaration sitting in the back of a of a Chevy Impala. Um, came back, printed it out on a printer at a Kinko's, and ran it back to the to the courthouse to the basement and he read it over and he signed it. And it was that kind of thing where people clearly did not want to cooperate, but the force of just being there and having human interaction uh, and they came to the decision, you know what, I'm going to do the right thing here, even though it's not my natural instinct. 
once you started getting into the case, getting up to speed, what what were your arguments on behalf of these individuals? They were all uh, in prison or still in prison, I assume, at that point. Um, so what what was the argument and where did you present it? The posture of the case was that, you know, these um, basically the, the cases had ended, right? Because either juries had found uh, these defendants guilty and their opportunity to appeal had run or they pled guilty. So we had to make an argument that there were constitutional defects in the trials. Um, and the argument we focused on was that the prosecution failed to disclose uh, information about uh, Tom Coleman that would have changed the outcome of the trials had the defendants and defense counsel known about it. And there were um, quite a few issues from Tom Coleman's past, uh, Des referred to a few of them that reflected negatively on his honesty. Uh, he had incidents with prior employers who were law enforcement agencies uh, where he allegedly stole money from those agencies uh, and engaged in other dishonest behavior. None of that was disclosed to the defense lawyers uh, in the underlying cases. So that became the focal point uh, of our argument uh, during the habeas corpus proceedings that we that we handled uh, in Texas. And those those proceedings were they tried in front of a judge? And tell tell us a little bit about how that ultimately played out. Well, um, they did play out in front of a judge. So there was. Um, you know, quite a bit of advocacy that got us to the point of having a live evidentiary hearing uh, on these matters. Um, it is not typically the case uh, that you necessarily get to have a hearing in open court, much less a hearing in open court with witnesses uh, when you're litigating a constitutional challenge to a criminal conviction. But through advocacy um, and through a lot of hard work by a lot of people, we were able to persuade a judge from the Dallas area named Ron Chapman, who was assigned specially to our case uh, to open up the proceedings to a uh, in-person hearing with witnesses. And of course, as things turned out, uh, that was one of the most important um, moments in the case because absent the ability to put our arguments on in front of a, not just in front of a judge, but in front of the whole country, um, you know, I don't think that the outcome or the impact of the case would have been anywhere near what it ended up being. And if I could add on, Kate, to that, uh, Mitch referred to Judge Chapman. It was one of the luckiest breaks that we got in this case when the trial judge who had overseen the trials and took the pleas wrote a letter to the editor once the, that we got involved in the case um, complaining that these were valid convictions that gave us an ability then to take a shot at a motion for recusal, which we filed. And uh, the judge, surprising to us, recused himself and Judge Chapman got appointed to the case. So sometimes justice happens after luck breaks. And, I, and sometimes a letter to the editor is a bad idea rather than a good idea, but very glad that he wrote that letter when he did. Um, so when, when the case was tried in front of Judge Chapman, um, tell us a little bit about how, how that outcome came about. What did Judge Chapman say and do? The critical um, part of that hearing, Kate, was that we got to put the law enforcement uh, officers who were involved in the uh, investigation, quote unquote, that led to the arrest and conviction uh, of the Tulia defendants on the stand. 
um, to probe uh, what they knew about Tom Coleman's background, what they knew about his um, dishonest acts in the past, and why those weren't disclosed to defense counsel in the underlying cases. So that involved a couple different witnesses, most notably uh, the sheriff uh, of the county uh, in which Tui is located, Larry Stewart, and then of course, Tom Coleman uh, himself. And um, the cross-examination of those witnesses um, was powerful. Uh, it revealed that they were uh, dishonest, uh, not just uh, by failing to disclose information about Coleman, but dishonest right there in trial under oath uh, during the proceedings that we were involved in. So um, basically, uh, during the middle of the examination of Tom Coleman, uh, the state decided to uh, pull back on the case because they couldn't support Tom Coleman anymore in light of his uh, dishonest and, and frankly racist uh, testimony. Uh, and that led to uh, not only our four clients in that case um, being uh, exonerated, uh, but also uh, Judge Chapman uh, dismissing the remaining uh, 32 prisoners um, because of his concerns about Tom Coleman uh, as a witness and as a credible law enforcement officer. In fact, Judge Chapman made some pretty incredible findings about Tom Coleman's uh, lack of honesty uh, and integrity as a witness. All of that uh, remarkably led to the pardon uh, of all those individuals by the governor uh, of Texas uh, who as I recall, was not in the habit of issuing pardons lightly. So it was um, kind of a snowball effect from the four individuals who we were representing in that particular proceeding to uh, eventually total exoneration for all. At that point, I believe it was about 36 uh, individuals who were still um, involved in that uh, law enforcement investigation. And if I could just add, because Mitch has said this in a way that is just too humble about what actually happened in that courtroom. And if I could set the stage a little bit, we were in a tiny little town in West Texas with a courtroom that sat probably 200 people filled with almost the entire African-American community of the town sitting in that courtroom. And Mitch had Tom Coleman on the stand. Uh, for, I think you had him one afternoon and then brought him back the next morning and two things st stood out to me. One is um, uh, Mitch employed a tactic that you would expect in a movie, which is we had one piece of video on which we could impeach Coleman on, but Mitch had the great idea of sending our associate to the, to the local store to buy about 10 blank videotapes and so Coleman gets on the stand, tells a lie. Mitch puts the first videotape in the player, impeaches him with it. And then he asks the next, and it was a devastating impeachment. Mitch asks the next question. Coleman looks and Mitch reaches his hand out to the second videotape. Coleman doesn't know it's blank. And Coleman knows he's caught and he starts telling the truth. It was a brilliant <laughs> piece of advocacy in the moment. And it's truly the best cross-examination I've ever seen. The second thing is on day two, we broke at lunchtime 
And we all went to the one restaurant in town that would serve us. Um, you know, we were not very popular in town. And we were all sitting in the back room, you know, eating this food that's terrible for you uh, and, and talking about it. And we were sitting at different tables. And we all came to the realization sitting there, the cross-examination was going so well. Coleman had told so many lies that right before we broke, literally Mitch had had a moment where he was crossing him and he he caught Coleman in a lie on the stand about making a racist statement. And literally everybody in the courtroom started yelling, he never said he was in the car because that was the next question. And Mitch turns to the audience and says, I know, I know, I got this and turns back and cross examines him. When that moment happened, we took a break for lunch. We go to this restaurant and we all sat there and came to the same conclusion. This is over. There's no way they can defend these convictions anymore. We went back and I'll be damned if when we got back, the state didn't approach us and say, you know, we need to talk. We, we need to get out of this case. And that's, that's, it was an amazing, amazing uh, job by Mitch. That's extraordinary. So the, the four clients you were representing at that time, I assume that they were still in prison during the trial. So tell us, um, you know, maybe Des, I'll start with you on this one. Were you there when they got out? We were. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Wow. That's uh, it's kind of, a, it's, sorry about that. It's kind of emotional to think about it for a moment. You know, we were there. So what happened is the state conceded. We, we took a break for about a month. Uh, we negotiated, uh, which we'll talk about, I'm sure. But we negotiated essentially a resolution that included the exoner the release of, of the 36, everybody who was in prison. So we, we went back the next month uh, to, for the day that they would be released. Um, and, and a, a uh, prison bus, think of, think of your classic prison bus, like a, a school bus that had been converted into a prison bus with wires on the window, pulls up in front of the courthouse and outpours our clients and many other people who were hog shackled, you know, arms, legs uh, shackled together and they were shackled themselves and then they were all shackled together. They were walked into the courtroom in sort of that chain gang way, sat in the jury box while the judge read out the factual findings that Mitch was talking about that included the statement that that, uh, Tom Coleman was the most dishonest law enforcement officer that that judge had seen in his 25 years on the bench. Um, he declared them innocent and free and released them. And it was quite a moment uh, where sort of um, tears in the eyes of everybody in the courtroom, including me, obviously, since I, there are tears in my eyes now, just living it again 17 years later. And there was this joyous yell from, from the well of the courtroom when people realized what was happening. It was a moment that... Um, you know, you go you go to law school thinking you want to see some justice in your life. You can never imagine it would be as good as it was. Mitch, anything to say on that? You know, your your mission was clear. Your focus was high. The people were real. Their families were real. Um, you were never confused about what was important uh, when you were in the middle of this thing. And it was... 18 hour days, 20 hour days, and you didn't feel a minute of it. You know, the sights, the sounds, the smells of that day, which is a, a long time ago now, um, are very, very clear to me as I sit here right now and think about it just like they are to Des. So, um, you know, 
I'm not only grateful for the the outcome, which was a just outcome, but I'm really profoundly grateful just as a person to have been um, there at that moment because it was um, it was about as as touching and important a moment that I've ever experienced as a professional. I can imagine. I can imagine. So I, I want to ask a little bit about compensation and consequence. Uh, were, were these uh, defendants, it seems strange to call them defendants since it was so fraudulent, but were these individuals compensated for uh, what Officer Coleman had put them through? They were, uh, and we were um, involved in that important uh, portion of, of the case too. Um, so in the wake of the um, hearing, the habeas corpus hearing that we participated in, um, we pursued uh, civil actions on behalf of the uh, Tuya, um, our, our Tuya clients. And I, I think by that point, all of the um, individuals who were involved in Tom Coleman's investigation had become our clients for purposes of the civil action. Um, and we, we pursued a civil rights claim on their behalf um, because of their mistreatment uh, in connection with the uh, Tom Coleman investigation. Uh, that was a big thing because there were, you know, 25 different counties involved in this uh, regional narcotics task force. There was a huge uh, mediation, which ended up being the setting uh, for the settlement of that case. Insurance companies were involved. Um, it was a... Uh, it was a big deal and it resulted in an, an excellent outcome with a uh, $5 million settlement, which um, for that part of the country in those counties was one of the most significant uh, civil settlements on record. I don't, I don't recall if it was the largest on record, but if it wasn't, it was certainly close. And it also um, involved disbanding this task force, um, which um, you know, easy for me to say what is more significant because that's real money to people who had been really injured, but disbanding the task force and injecting some more accountability into law enforcement in that part of the country was also a very important part of that outcome. I was curious about that particular consequence. I'm also wondering, Des, did, did Officer Coleman face a consequence of all of this? What happened to him? Yeah, he did, Kate. Uh, Thank goodness justice prevailed with Officer Coleman, too. Um, the, our opposing counsel in the case, one of our opposing counsel, uh, who was on the state side, had been uh, designated as a special prosecutor, decided after seeing the cross-examination of Coleman that he could not abide it. He ended up, uh, he ended up uh, indicting Officer Coleman. And Coleman went to trial and was convicted of perjury and was sentenced to a prison sentence for perjury, both in our case and perjurous statements that he had made in court cases that ended up in the convictions. And one of the associates on our team, uh, Jen Clark, actually went to Texas and was designated as a, a special assistant uh, state attorney in that case. And helped uh, help the conviction come to life. Uh, I think the local prosecutor had seen her sitting next to Mitch as he was uh, taking apart Tom Coleman in our case and realized I need that kind of help to, to take care of Coleman in the perjury case. Uh, and so he ended up spending some time in prison 
I, I have to acknowledge Tom and I have lost touch since he went to prison. <laughs> so, Mitch, you, you mentioned uh, a minute or two ago that this all of these memories are very fresh, but this did happen a long time ago. I'm, I'm wondering how, when you think about this uh, case, this hearing, the outcome, how is it relevant to what we're seeing today, for example? There are a lot of um, parallels between what happened in Tulia, Texas, unfortunately, and what's still happening uh, in the United States today. Uh, when I think about the impact of that experience in Tulia, uh, there are probably three things that I think about. One is, you know, we were able to take a situation involving four people uh, in a courtroom and turn it into justice for 36, which involved full pardons in a state that probably isn't known for um, doing any favors for individuals who are caught up in the criminal justice system. So that's powerful. Impact point number two is the world had its eyes on that, right? That was New York Times, that was CBS News, that was CNN. And so awareness of injustice, particularly injustice that has um, a racial dynamic is very important in terms of affecting change, right? And so the Tulia case is on that timeline of important civil rights cases in American history. Um, it's a timeline that continues, uh, unfortunately, to put cases uh, on the timeline, right? And so this summer, we're adding more cases to that timeline, but it's a journey, right? And the more eyes that are um, on injustice, the greater the momentum um, builds for change. And so Tulio was part of it. It's certainly not the last part of it, uh, but it's a meaningful point along the journey. And then the last thing that we need to talk about is um, kind of law enforcement reform, right? Um, part of the problem with the Tom Coleman situation was that none of his arrests were corroborated. And that was a time in Texas where counties and task forces were allowed to bring cases in the absence of corroboration. And that has changed. Uh, so in large part because of this case, um, corroboration is required uh, to bring these kinds of actions um, in, in Texas, whereas 17 years ago, that wasn't a requirement. So I suppose another lasting impact of this, at least in that part of the country, is that we have some checks and balances back in the system that we didn't have. And the absence of checks and balances can be very dangerous for everyone, but particularly for folks who don't have the resources um, to necessarily fight on a level playing field with uh, the folks who have the resources. Absolutely. Des, do you have additional thoughts? I think Mitch has hit the big thoughts. I, I guess to narrow it to the lasting impact on this case within the community that we live in, I want to mention two. One is that there was a young lawyer at LDF who we worked with, Vanita Gupta, who has gone on to become the head of the Civil Rights Division in the Obama administration, and then now is the executive director replacing um, uh, the longtime director of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, uh, and is one of the leading civil rights attorneys in the country. And uh, it, I think this case helped launch her career and what has resulted in a lot of good that she has been focused on. But also for the firm, 
has done something else. It created relationships between us and LDF and us and our other co-counsel, where a number of the cases that are in this podcast series, we ended up working with them on uh, a couple of the death penalty cases that I know this podcast series is talking about. Um, the Secret Service case that, that we're talking about, we've uh, worked with George Kendall, uh, Laura Burstein and others, but it created a community of people who were out and doing good in the world uh, through their legal advocacy. And the, the final thing is I just, I want to say that what, that what it took in that case is what it continues to take. And I'm glad the firm and others are dedicated to it, which is it took thousands of hours of young lawyer time and the commitment of a law firm to allow them and support them to go do it. And that's, that's what we did. That's what other law firms did. And we, we should hold this up as an example of exactly what law firms should be doing to help the cause of justice. That's wonderful. Thanks, Jess. Anything else either of you wants to add? What I want everyone who's listening to this podcast who is a young lawyer or lawyer to be interested in uh, social justice work is that big moments are the product of a lot of moments, right? And so that moment when Tom Coleman lied under oath um, was the product of a thousand moments uh, that led to that point in time. Um, and the preparation that goes into that moment, uh, you know, we were up till four in the morning uh, the night before it. I remember very vividly watching um, video interviews of Tom Coleman, outtakes of video interviews with Tom Coleman, just to make sure we not only knew what he was going to say under oath, but so we understood him psychologically. Uh, as a witness, which factored into our approach. So it's a moment, I hope, of great pride for the law firm, uh, certainly for us who were involved in it. Um, and it is, um, you know, in those small towns, Kate, there aren't a lot of checks and balances on prosecutorial power, right? The lawyers who represented a lot of these individuals were appointed by the court. There's no public defender in Tulia, Texas. And a lot of those lawyers get paid, you know, um, when they get appointed on cases. And if they, if they intuit that they're gonna get more appointments and more money by putting up little resistance in those cases, that's what they do. And so it ended up being that this pro bono community had to be the check and balance on this situation we need to think hard about ways to improve our structures so that there are checks and balances kind of embedded into the system. But um, in this case, at that moment in time, uh, it took um, a heck of a lot of uh, effort and passion uh, to, uh, to step into that situation where we weren't uh, necessarily um, uh, beloved or invited, at least at first, um, to make a difference there. If some of this is also um, about the stories of our clients, you know, we're talking about, um, you know, high school star athletes with no criminal records getting 30 year prison sentences, 60 uh, year old hog farmers getting 90 year uh, sentences, um, uh, members of the community with no interaction with law enforcement being accused of, you know, dealing two grams of cocaine and getting 30, 50, 70 year uh, sentences. So this was the, the human side uh, to what we were dealing with. 
And um, it was it was quite a vibe um, going into Tulia, Texas, uh, to try these uh, to try these cases. Um, you know, a, a town that um, a rural town where hog farming, I, I believe, is the the big business in town. Um, you remember the heat. Uh, you remember the dryness. Uh, you remember kind of the the trying to find your fit in that community. Uh, we clearly weren't from there. Uh, we, you know, were the, the suited group of uh, 10 to 12 people who kind of moved through town um, towards the courthouse each day. Uh, and then slowly over time, as I think people understood what we were doing, um, starting to get the sense that a lot of the people there were really in support of what we were doing, although they didn't know quite what to do with us when we first got there. So hopefully we won over uh, a lot of Tulia, um, but we were an unusual, I think an unusual site when we first dropped on the scene. As we hear about Hogan Lovell's pro bono litigation, you get a sense of how resource intensive any given case may be. As we all probably know, when arrested in the United States, citizens are entitled to legal representation. But that does not always mean a defendant gets a fair trial. In our next episode of the podcast, we examine our efforts to reduce enormous caseloads at the Public Defender's Office in Miami, Florida, to ensure defendants get the legal help to which they are entitled. We hope you'll join us.